Chapter 6 Full ahead, battle speed. Helm, engage portside manoeuvring thrusters and bring us around one point to starboard. On my mark, maintain formation position and keep us within three unit distances of our wing vessels. Stand by all stations. Mr. Nider, be ready to fire torpedoes at my command. Leighton Semper stood in his customary position on the bridge, mindful of the newly gleaming Commodore rank bars on the epaulets of his tunic, mindful too that, in the unspoken opinion of some under his command, including, most probably, some here on his own command deck, he had yet to prove his right to wear the new rank insignia. His promotion to the brevet rank of Commodore Captain had been a battlefield necessity, made during the Third Battle of the Moons of Pragamon, several weeks earlier, when a lucky lance strike had struck the bridge of the battlecruiser Lord Hauska, killing its captain. Commodore Haruna had been the commander of the battle squadron, and Semper, named in the mortally injured man's dying words, had assumed command of the Imperial forces and driven the opportunistic Chaos Raid back out to the system's outer fringes. Battlefleet Command had allowed the temporary promotion to stand, but Semper was all too aware that his sudden elevation had been at the expense of several other ship captains within the battle squadron, all of whom had greater seniority than him in terms of years of service. If any of this troubled him, he never allowed it to show externally. He stood there, the calm and steady centre of the vortex of activity which filled the command deck of his Divine Majesty's ship, the Lord Solar Macarius. Brightly robed tech priests communed together, whispering secret machine god words to the machine mind spirit within the ship's mighty logic engines, assuring it of its survival in the battle just about to begin. Choirs of servitors droned in chaotic unison, relaying the streams of information flooding in from all sections of the ship and from the other vessels in the battle group. Gunnery officers bustled amongst themselves, checking and rechecking likely target patterns and firing solutions. Ensigns and junior officers received reports from duty stations on every deck of the ship and relayed them to senior officers who, in turn, reported it to Lieutenant Hito Alante. The ship's second-in-command digested the information and communicated its summary to his captain with a single nod and a few brief words. All stations standing by and ready to commence battle. Semper nodded in acknowledgement and looked out through the command deck's front viewing bay. Through the metre-thick armoured plastil, and still thousands of kilometres distant, but magnified by the viewing bay's inbuilt auger systems, he saw the wide scattering of targets ahead. At a casual glance, it looked like a field of large asteroids, but a closer inspection of the magnified August screen images and the telemetry data being gathered by the ship's surveyor showed that several of the asteroids were firing huge and crude thruster rockets in an attempt to manoeuvre into position, while the upwards fluctuating energy signals surrounding many others showed them preparing to do likewise. Orc rocks. Asteroids taken over and colonised by the green-skinned creatures and turned into crude but highly effective mobile fortresses. Twenty-eight of them counted so far in this cluster, with Emperor knows how many others scattered throughout this, the Mather system, creating a deadly obstacle to any Imperial convoys attempting to traverse this area of space. Two years ago, 
The last time a small imperial force had been dispatched to Matha to scour the system of any green-skinned presence, just four of the asteroid fortresses had been detected and destroyed. Now, as was so typical of the creatures, they had seemingly emerged from nowhere to multiply and fester in even greater numbers than before. Weeds, he murmured to himself, not realising at first that he was speaking aloud. Elante, standing nearby, caught the word, but not its meaning. Captain? Weeds, Semper repeated, gesturing at the constellation of asteroid vessels before them. My grandfather was an admiral in Battlefleet Tamahal, and I remember a childhood visit to his estate on Cipramundi after he had been granted permission to retire. If the crew think this particular Captain Semper is a stern taskmaster, Mr. Elante, then he didn't know my grandfather. He was a holy terror amongst both the Emperor's enemies and his own men. My cousins and I were terrified of the old devil. A hint of a smile crossed Semper's face as his mind recalled the events of the past. I remember one time, though, when he seemed almost human to me. He took me out to the fields of his estate. After a lifetime of warfare amongst the stars, he relished the quiet tranquillity of the countryside uh, to help him supervise the planting of next season's crops. Ulante feigned polite interest, wondering where all this was going, especially with battle imminent. Also, as a hive-worlder, even a high-born aristocratic one, he had lived most of his life in a world where the open elements promised nothing but danger and toxic death. And so Semper's talk of idyllic pastoral scenes meant almost nothing to him. Semper sensed his second-in-command's slightly baffled impatience and allowed himself another brief smile. That season my grandfather had been having trouble with weeds amongst his beloved racky fruit crops. They'd had to replant the crop three times already, and I can remember seeing him getting down on his hands and knees amongst the servitor workers and pulling the weeds out of the earth with his own hands. Damned greenskins, he called them, hurling them away as far as he could. Always watch out for them, Leoton, he told me. Just when you think you've dug them all up, there's always more of them popping up as soon as your back's turned. Semper glanced at Elante, still seeing puzzlement in the younger man's face. My grandfather knew all about orcs, Hito. He won his admiral's spurs against the Greenskins during the Cordium campaign, and he took part in the scouring of the Achillea reaches. I didn't know what he meant then, but I fought those savages since, and now I know exactly what he was talking about all those years ago. He pointed at the asteroid cluster dead ahead of them. The details and numbers of the orc rock fortresses were becoming more apparent the closer they drew to them. Weeds, Mr. Olante, no sooner do we wipe them out than they grow back again. Flashes of light from the pattern of rocks signalled the commencement of hostilities. Orc munitions, massive, unwieldy and potentially devastating, flew through the void to detonate harmlessly in space, well ahead of the advancing Imperial battle line. Typical greenskins, no real command ability to speak of, grunted Werner Miele, the Macarius's efficient gunnery master. We're well out of range, and they still can't wait to open fire. Still at least the energy release from their weapons fire gives our gunnery surveyors an easier target to lock onto. Semper 
signalled to a communications officer. A comnet channel opened up, linking him to the bridge of every other ship in the Imperial Navy formation. Semper to battle group. To arms, gentlemen. Let us tend to the Emperor's garden, he ordered, knowing that he was about to prove once and for all his right to wear those new rank epaulets on his shoulders. The Macarius powered forward. It's gargantuan plasma engines, spilling out a fire-cloud trail in its wake. To its starboard lay the Gothic-class cruiser Drakenfels, an old and dependable comrade vessel, and the dauntless-class light cruiser Triton. Triton's sister ship, Manon, and the lunar-class cruiser Graf Orlok, an old but less dependable comrade vessel, were arrayed to the Macarius's port side, while the Dominator-class cruiser Fearsome flew within the arrowhead formation formed by the other cruisers. It was the clenched fist inside the armoured gauntlet, its deadly, prow-mounted Nova Cannon weapon aimed at the heart of the Orc forces. Accompanying it were the escort carriers Vengeance of Pilatus and Memory of Branniger, merchantmen transports converted to military use and named after just two of those many imperial worlds which had been destroyed during the war. Swarms of close-range attack craft, wide-winged marauders and vicious little snub-nosed thunderbolt fighters surged forth from makeshift launch bays in the carrier's hulls, forming up into attack formations of their own. Dual squadrons of Cobra destroyers swept out wide along the battle group's front, guarding its flanks and extending its firepower all across the enemy's front. A significant force by any measure, but one which Semper wished with all his heart he did not now have to lead into battle here. Battlefleet Gothic's resources were stretched to breaking point to meet the threat posed by the forces of Abaddon the Despoiler, and each one of these ships gathered here today to deal with the Orcs meant to ship less elsewhere within the Imperial line of battle, where it was needed most. Semper and his fellow captains would rather be fighting the Despoiler's war fleets than these green-skinned savages, and again he damned the Orcs to the Eye of Terror and back, and vowed to make the creatures pay for the deadly but very much secondary threat they posed to the Emperor's forces within the Gothic sector forcing Lord Ravensburg to deploy much-needed warships away from the war's main battlefronts. All ships forward. Mr. Nider, range the closest target. Torpedo range is good, Captain, but they've put up a fighter screen in front of them. I wouldn't trade ten of those green-skinned death-trap contraptions they call fighters for one of our furies, especially one of my pilots in the cockpit, but they've got a hell of a lot of the damnable things. Estimate they managed to intercept at least half our fish before they reach their targets. That's even before the greenskins bring their defence turrets into play. Semper nodded. Very well. Bring our own fight away forward. We'll dangle some bait in front of their noses and see what they do then. Storm leader to squadron. Full thrust forward on my lead. Let's show these animals what proper flying looks like. Amic Keither opened up the power feed on his Fury's engine drives, sending the interceptor fighter hurtling towards the Orc line. Around him, the other craft of Storm Squadron did likewise, forming up around their commander in a perfect and deceptively simple-looking formation. 
Around and behind storm, cruising in matching formation patterns came the craft of Hornet and Hurricane squadrons, while Arrow, the fourth of Macarius's Fury squadrons, remained on a tight anti-ordnance defensive orbit around the advancing cruisers, ready to intercept any enemy torpedo or bomber craft attacks on the capital ships. Keitha grinned. Aob Taraka, his counterpart in Arrow, was neither a patient nor an understanding man, and would doubtlessly be chafing in angry frustration at the role assigned to his squadron for this coming battle. Keitha had more than a hundred enemy kills to his credit, the highest kill count of any of the Macarius's fighter squadron commanders, but in a drunken boast one night in the pilot's mess, Tarako, with just over eighty kills to his tally, had promised to surpass Keitha's score before the ship put into port for its next scheduled refit. Today, Tarako seemed likely to find little other than some rusty and easily destroyed green-skinned torpedo passing through his Fury's weapon sights, while Keitha was flying straight into the teeth of the enemy force, and if he survived, would doubtlessly return to the Macarius, with his kill tally further strengthened and his title unchallenged. Yes, he reminded himself, looking towards the wing formation on his starboard side. Highest scoring squadron commander, but not the highest scoring ace aboard the Macarius. No, that honour definitely belonged to another. Almost 200 confirmed enemy fighter or bomber kills. An emperor knew how many other lesser targets, such as assault craft, torpedoes, mine bombs, landing pods, orbital lighters, or even life rafts. A glance confirmed that the Macarius' top fighter ace was there in position on the far starboard side of the formation. It may have been Keitha's imagination, but it seemed to him that the last fury in line was slightly further away from his nearest wingman than was customary. If so, it was typical of the attitude of the occupant of the fighter's cockpit. He never mixed with his fellow pilots, he never visited the pilot's mess, he never took part in the tight-knit and often raucous camaraderie common amongst the other Fury interceptor pilots, whose life expectancy in frontline action during the Gothic War could often be measured in months, and so were granted a grudging amnesty from the generally harsh discipline requirements aboard an Imperial warship. He didn't even share quarters with the other pilots, his veteran ace status, and the unspoken disquiet he caused amongst his squadron comrades, allowing him private quarters of his own, away from the others. Kiefer looked again, seeing that his formation's far starboard linchpin was proceeding as ordered, flying fast and true, predictably taking no part in the nervous and excited pre-battle banter between pilots which filled the squadron comnet channel. Reth. Zane. Zealot Zane, as they call him. Now four years after the horrific injuries the pilot had suffered in the aftermath of the events surrounding the evacuation and subsequent destruction of the Imperial world of Pilatus, he seemed even more remote and less human than ever. Form up, Keitha commanded over the comnet. Be ready to wheel when you hear the word. Acknowledgement runes flashed across the instrument screen in front of him one for each of the thirteen pilots under his command. Zone, he added, trying to keep the note of distaste out of his voice. You're on the far starboard point, so we're depending on you to get this right. Ready when you give the word, Commander, came the electronically modulated voice over the comnet. 
Little evidence of humanity remained in Zane's voice after the tech priests and ship surgeons had done what they could with the charred and ruin-fleshed horror that had been brought to them more dead than alive those four years ago. The end of Zane's comnet reply was obliterated in heavy spray of static, overlaid with bursts of barking grunts and thick, incomprehensibly guttural voices, making words and sounds which no human throat could ever produce. Orc talk. The voices of the enemy, broadcast on crude but powerful ship-carried transmitters, and now cutting randomly into the Imperial Force's own separate comnet channels. In the cockpit space behind him, Keitha knew his tech-adept navigator, Menatho, would now be altering the squadron's comnet frequencies, a setting of blocker walls to filter out the enemy interference. That meant they were close now, Keitha realised. Close enough to have entered the enemy's own comnet bubble. Close enough to be beginning to take incoming fire as the nearest rock fortress's defence turrets opened up at them with their first bursts of wild-aimed speculative fire. Keitha's eyes flickered between the view through his cockpit as the distant shapes of the orc vessels loomed ever larger before him, and the information scrolling across his instrumentation panel's surveyor screens as the closing distance to the enemy counted down in kilometres and seconds. They were even closer now, close enough to start picking out details on the thick, rocky hides of the asteroid fortresses. Close enough to begin to see the bewildering array of thruster engines, weapon emplacements, airlock entrances, attack craft launch bays, observation blisters, torpedo silos and defence turrets, which studied their surfaces at seemingly random points, close enough to see the swarms of fighter-bomber craft which buzzed excitedly in the orbits of the closest rocks. As he watched, he saw more and more of them peel away from the main body of Orc vessels, unable to resist the challenge of the oncoming Fury squadrons. Typical greenskins, thought Keitha, confident now that the strategy was indeed going to work. Offer them the chance of a good scrap, and they'll trample each other into the dust to take you up on your offer. Keitha counted the passing of several more long and drawn-out seconds, leaving the final moment until as late as he dared, balancing how many more greenskin fighters he could draw off against the likely effective range of the increasing numbers of defence turrets now being aimed in his direction. Storm leader to squadron, wheel, ordered Keitha finally, almost shouting into his helmet comlink. Zane, show us the road out of here. As one, with Zane out on the far starboard wing, leading the way, the entire fighter formation pivoted in a wide-arcing 90-degree turn to port, taking them right across the front of the enemy line. They were met by a hail of fire from the nearest rock fortresses. Explosions filled the void around them, radioactive and more conventional fallout debris buffeting violently against the Fury's armour. Keitha's craft rocked violently, caught in the electronic squall from a nearby orc dirty bomb explosion, and he saw amber warning runes light up across his instrumentation panel. In the rear of the cockpit, Minato recalibrated power feed systems and whispered prayer words to the fighter's guiding machine spirit. A second later, the flashing runes on Keitha's panel returned to a solid and reassuring green, 
More runes lit up as the other craft in the formation reported in. Thirteen runes. All of Storm Squadron had survived the potentially disastrous manoeuvre intact. How's the view behind us, Minato? He asked over the cockpit's internal comm channel. Busy, Commander, came the simple, understated reply. A glance at the rearward surveyor screen confirmed the tech priest's succinct choice of words. Enemy fighter icons crowded across the screen, massing in chaotic and haphazard pursuit of the apparently retreating Imperial fighter wave. Keitha smiled. Manetho had managed to block out the Orc Comnet interference, but he could almost imagine the Orc Warlord Commander's screams of frustrated rage as his protective fighter screen disintegrated before his very eyes, his pilots falling for Captain Semper's ploy and chasing off in disordered pursuit of the Imperial faint attack. He activated his comlink to the carrier vessel's command deck. Storm leader to Macarius. The bait has been taken. The field is yours. On the bridge of the Macarius, communications officers confirmed the incoming signals from their sister ships. Dragonfell's ready. Graf Orlock ready. Vanguard squadron ready. Praetorian squadron ready. Macarius ready. The last confirmation came from Remus Nider. The Macarius is master of ordnance. Semper gestured in acknowledgement and raised his voice, knowing his words would be carried over the comnet to his brother captains on the bridges of their own vessels. Very good, gentlemen. Fire on my mark. Fire! Seconds later, a deep shudder ran through the hull of the Macarius, signalling the launch of multiple torpedo missiles and the commencement of the battle in earnest. Torpedoes running true announced an ordnance officer. Four gone, two still in the tubes. Understood. Commence ordnance reloading on tubes one to four, ordered Semper. The torpedoes rocketed away from the ship. The four fiery contrails of plasma gas from their full-burn engines, matched on either side by an equal number of torpedo launches from the two other cruisers in the formation. Twelve torpedoes, with the Cobra Destroyer Squadron on the flanks, also launching six torpedoes apiece. A total of twenty-four torpedoes, all converging on the same two targets at the centre front of the Orc Cluster. Orc fighters, from what was left of the Orc's defensive fighter screen, scrambled to intercept the deadly missile wave. What the Orcs lacked in coordination and intelligence, they more than compensated for in terms of firepower and sheer bestial determination. Semper watched the bridge surveyor screen calmly as three of the torpedo icons winked out of existence, one after the other, blown apart by the formidable weaponry of the Orc craft. Moments later, the surviving 21 torpedoes were through the fighter screen, running the gauntlet of defensive fire from the target rock's anti-ordnance batteries. The Orc gunners, no doubt urged on by the angry roars of their brutal overseers, threw up a curtain of fire in the torpedo wave's path, destroying not only torpedoes but also more than a dozen of their own fighters, which were still pursuing the missiles. Semper watched as two more active torpedo icons disappeared from the screens, and then two more. There was a sharp intake of breath from one of the other officers on the deck as yet another icon disappeared off the screen. Sixteen torpedoes left. Would that be enough to accomplish the desired task? 
One of the torpedo icons suddenly flashed red, then another and still another. In seconds, the screen filled with red-coloured icons. Red for impact detonation. 14 red icons. 14 hits on target. Two of the icons remained unlit. Two of the torpedoes, malfunctioning or possibly with their machine mine guidance systems damaged by enemy fire, failed to find their slow-moving, lumbering targets and continued their journey, heading into the heart of the Orc Cluster, where it was entirely possible they still might acquire and damage other enemy targets. The torpedo wave's target had been the two largest rock fortresses in the enemy front line. The rocks were massive, one of them easily over eight kilometres from tip to tip, and possibly as many as four kilometres across. Eight torpedoes struck it, the remaining six finding the other one. Normally, it might have taken several dozen torpedo strikes to destroy targets this large. But today, however, today the Imperium's warships were using new ordnance, so-called rock-buster torpedoes, specially designed for the task in hand. The torpedoes struck the pitted and cratered surface of the rocks, their armoured nose cones spinning like giant drill bits and boring into the porous rock. The missiles burrowed deep into the bodies of the asteroids, drilling through hundreds of metres of rock in seconds. When the high-speed drill motor burned itself out at the end of its short lifespan, it triggered the warhead payload. The torpedoes exploded. Their payload was not the conventional plasma fusion warheads used in normal ship-to-ship actions designed to melt and destroy ships' hulls and set their internal compartments ablaze. Instead, the Rockbusters' warheads were packed with high-explosive seismic charges designed to shatter and pulverise rock, setting off a chain reaction of aftershocks within the structure of their asteroid targets far in excess of the payload's explosive yield. To those watching on the command decks of the Imperial ships, it seemed as if the two massive Orc fortresses simply burst apart from within. The smaller one went first. The majority of it vaporised in a huge secondary explosion as something inside it, some deep buried power source or magazine cavern full of unstable, high-explosive ordnance, detonated under the effects of the torpedo strike. The larger one shook and rumbled, and then, slowly... Jagged, fiery lines appeared all across its surface. The lines split apart, growing ever wider and revealing huge fires consuming the interior of the thing. Chunks of it broke away and were sent spinning off into space, a prelude to what was about to happen. A second later, the entire rock came apart, disintegrating in a ravenous and fiery explosion. Fragments of it, huge and deadly, hurled out with explosive force, raining meteor destruction amongst the rocks nearest to it. From the safety of the bridge, Semper saw one jagged shard, larger than a frigate, strike another rock, piercing it like a dagger and sending it tumbling askew out of the orc formation. Two or maybe even three down, at least twenty-six more to go noted the laconic voice of one of the Macarius's senior gunnery officers. Semper grunted in grim humour at the comment. It would indeed be a remarkable achievement if his force managed to destroy all the rocks, even assuming they had enough rock-buster torpedoes to accomplish such a task, which, as everyone on the command deck knew, was certainly not the case. 
The new experimental ordnance devices were rare and expensive, and so far in short supply. Semper had little doubt that, assuming they actually survived the engagement, he and his fellow captains would be recommending that the rockbusters become part of the standard specialist range of torpedoes available to the forces of Battlefleet Gothic, after their first and highly successful testing here today under battlefield conditions. Ordnance report, Mr Nider, he asked. How many seismic torpedoes do we have left? The rockbusters... Four, Captain. Those shiftless Munitorum heretics were probably too busy chasing young adepts or polishing up all that gold braid they give themselves to organise the supply of more than eight per ship to those of us who actually do the fighting in this man's war. No sense letting them go to waste, then, I imagine. We have a new target laid in. Neither gestured towards the magnified image of one of the rocks on the spec screen before him. The big one here. The one with what looks like the profile of old Lord Admiral Dardania, Emperor his devilish old soul, staring out at us from amongst those rock formations on its starboard flank. We're doubling up our fire with Drakenfells. They're reloading and waiting for the word. Semper looked at the Orspec's magnified image. Curiously, the jagged rock formation in question truly did resemble the unmistakable and craggy countenance of the former Lord Admiral, one of Battlefleet Gothic's greatest and most legendary commanders. I wonder, Mr Nider, would it be a court-martial offence to aim our torpedoes at the face of the good Lord Admiral? Semper asked with a half-smile. Nider returned the joke. If I recall correctly, sir, from what I can remember of the history classes at the academies on Cipramundi, the old admiral was supposed to be a fearsome old orc hater. I think he'd probably thank us for taking his face off the side of that thing. I concur, smiled Semper. Fire when ready, Mr. Nider. We'll dedicate this kill to the Lord Admiral's memory. Flame reeved the prows of the Imperial ships once more as they launched another torpedo wave at the target rocks. They were close now, close enough to be within range of the old batteries, and energy bursts erupted around the Macarius and its sister ships as the first orc fire impacted against their void shields. The orc fire was still sporadic and uncoordinated, but would soon grow in strength. The Imperial strategy had been to hit the orcs hard and fast, stunning them into a state of helpless panic with a sudden and ferocious assault. The swift destruction of the two largest orc fortresses and the chaos and confusion it had caused amongst the Greenskin line had done much to achieve this end, but now the human battle force had to ensure that they maintained the pressure of the attack and that the initiative remained on their side of the engagement. The second and final wave of rockbusters struck home. Two more rocks, considerably smaller than the first two targets, explosively fragmented apart. A third remained mostly intact, but the weapons fire from its batteries slowed to an ineffectual trickle, and it began to drift out of position, its engines and steering systems apparently knocked out of action. Minutes later, its erratic and rudderless course would bring it blundering helplessly into the field of fire of several other rocks, a combined salvo of mass reactive howitzer fire, each shell the size of a Fury Interceptor fighter, and tractor beam launched plasma meteors, smashed apart the crippled rock, finishing the task begun by the Imperium torpedoes. Three more down, twenty-three more to go. 
Semper felt a strong impact shudder run through his ship as enemy fire landed its first direct hit on the Macarius, stripping the cruiser of one of its void shields. The deck beneath his feet lurched under the shock, and he fought the urge to lean onto his lectern for support, knowing that many eyes would be casting nervous glances at him right now. In many ways, he was a captain of the old school, and firmly believed the old naval collegium maxim, a vessel's strength lies not in its armour or its weapons, but in its captain, and the will of its captain must be stronger than the densest adamantium armour. A minor hit on our forward starboard side, reported Alante, consulting the information scrolling across his screen. Void shield generators are fully operational, and shield integrity is already regenerating itself. I hope the greenskins can do better than that, noted Semper. We came a long way for this fight, so they'd better not let us down now. There was the expected ripple of polite laughter from his officers, but Semper felt the atmosphere on the bridge around him relax a little his crew reassured by their captain's modest attempt at humour. He looked out at the scene ahead of them, as the cluster of rocks loomed ever closer, the tactician in him noting their clumsy attempts at formation change and the likely weaknesses in their incoming gunnery fire patterns, while the warrior in him secretly exulted at the thought of the battle to come. Their battle plan had worked so far, he reminded himself, and the orcs had obligingly taken the bait offered to them earlier on. Would they now? Fall for the same trick again. The bait was here, right in front of them. The Macarius and its sister cruisers. So would it be enough to draw out the true prize? The Imperial Battle Force had come here to engage and destroy? Chapter 7 Like the Orcs themselves, the battle which followed was savage and relentless, chaotic and unpredictable. Two more rocks, Smaller than any of the previous targets fell victim to massed salvos of torpedoes. After that, the Imperium vessels were in amongst the enemy, able to bring their side-mounted weapons batteries to bear and using torpedoes for target of opportunity fire on any orc rock foolish enough to drift across their bows. The orcs, in their own way, fought back furiously and without respite. An orc torpedo struck the Manan midship, the light cruiser staggered under the impact, but limped on, trailing debris and burning gases in its wake, making it that much easier a target for the orc gunners. The Macarius took a heavy cannon battery hit in its thickly armoured prow, temporarily knocking out two of its torpedo tubes. The impact of the hit set off alarm klaxons throughout the ship. On the command deck, tech priests redoubled their prayers in praise and reassurance of the ship's troubled machine mind spirit. Launching from multiple rocks, the orcs finally managed to form something resembling an organised attack craft wave. The huge, sprawling wave of orc fighter bombers targeted the Macarius and were immediately intercepted by the carrier cruiser's own protective fighter screens. Too late, Semper remembered that orcs, for all their mindless barbarity, were not without intelligence and were easily capable of a surprising level of natural cunning. The attempted attack on the Macarius had been a faint, albeit a heavily costly one from the Orcs' point of view, drawing off the greater part of the Imperial Formation's fighter cover and leaving unprotected the two escort carriers at the Formation's centre. A larger splinter group of the main Orc attack wave peeled away from the main dogfight and fell upon these two targets with gleeful abandon, 
Swarms of the small but heavily armed Orc fighter bomber craft made daredevil attack runs on the two carrier vessels, neither of which had any of the armour, shield protection or anti-ordnance defences of a larger and true carrier vessel like the Macarius. In minutes, the memory of Brinegar was crippled in a flame, while the vengeance of Pilatus was desperately launching what was left of its own attack craft squadrons in a race against its own likely and imminent destruction. Amongst the Imperial cruisers, the Graf Orlok was drawn into an unequal duel against the combined batteries of three different rocks. Its captain, the notorious Titus von Blotcher, owed his position mostly to a shared distant kinship with Lord Admiral Ravensburg, but Semper was surprised and pleased to note that von Blotcher seemed to have developed something actually resembling a backbone over the last few years. The Graf Orlok mounted an effective fighting retreat, its own batteries of laser cannons and fusion beamers silencing the guns of one of its enemies. Still, the Lunar-class cruiser was in mounting trouble, its void shields stripped away and the explosive bloom of successful enemy hits erupting along the length of its hull. Vanguard Squadron came to its rescue, the group of three Cobra destroyers mounting a fast-attack torpedo run on one of the rocks. The rock shook under the impact of two successful torpedo detonations, but was able to attack in return. A powerful tractor beam was brought into use as a huge and primitive catapult weapon, seizing and ripping away parts of the rock's own asteroid body and hurling them into space at the Imperium ships. The weapon was typically orcish, barbaric and makeshift, and typically highly effective. One of the Cobras, turning too late out of its torpedo run, was smashed in half by the impact of an asteroid missile fully 200 metres across. Graf Orlok and the remaining two surviving Cobras beat a hasty retreat, rejoining the comparative safety of the main Imperial line of battle. The Imperium line wavered but did not break, under the mounting toll of damage. Its vessels kept up their own withering rain of fire upon the enemy rocks, and slowly the pattern of the battle began to show in their favour. Squadrons of marauder bombers targeted one of the rocks, seeking vengeance for the damage done to their escort carrier motherships. The marauders, smaller, less well-armed and less well-suited for deep space combat, still excelled under the conditions of this battle. Their atmosphere-capable configuration, allowing them to manoeuvre at ease amongst the asteroid field, skimming and gliding across the surface of the rocks. They laid waste to one of the rocks, making low-level bombing runs across its cratered skin, targeting and expertly picking off gun emplacements, torpedo silos, shield generators and engine thrusters with crippling precision strikes from their plasma bomb and armour-piercing missile payloads, and leaving the rock drifting helpless and defenceless, ready for the heavy batteries of an Imperial cruiser to later deliver the final coup de grace. From its position... In amongst the main cruiser formation, the Fearsome fulfilled its supporting role to devastating effect. Its massive, jutting, prow-mounted Nova cannon wreaked havoc amongst the Orc rocks, firing explosive projectiles into their midst at near light speed. The Fearsome's captain and gunnery officers were veterans in the effective use of the powerful but unpredictable weapon. The slow-moving and clumsy rocks made for easy targets, and Fury fighters adapted to specialist reconnaissance duties, were in close amongst the enemy target cluster, feeding back accurate and instantaneous telemetry data to the Fearsome's gunners. So far, four shots have reduced two rocks 
to just so much drifting and shattered asteroid debris. The last shot striking its target dead centre and breaking it apart like a giant sledgehammer blow. The orcs retaliated, mounting another faint attack on the Macarius, one part of the assault wave splitting off towards its real intended target of the fearsome. As they had already illustrated earlier in the battle, the orcs were neither wholly without intelligence or a certain cunning, but ultimately their mindless animal nature triumphed in their assumption that the same trick would work twice in the same battle against the same opponent. Easily able to anticipate the repeat tactic, several squadrons of Furies and Thunderbolts intercepted the attack aimed at the fearsome, and the orc attack wing was annihilated in mass. A multitude of attack craft dogfights erupted around the Macarius, as what was left of the desperate forces in the faint assault pressed forward their attack on the carrier for real this time. The cruiser was surrounded by a halo of tiny flickering lights. The flashes of fighter-mounted laser cannons and the detonations of exploded fighter craft as the attack craft battle raged around it. A determined thrust by the orcs opened up a breach in the fighter screen, two furies from Hornet Squadron falling victim to a combined hail of orc rockets and cannon fire. From his commanding position on the bridge of the Macarius, Semper had a clear view of the incident as a flight of four orc fighter bombers broke through and sped directly towards him, blazing a trail right up the dorsal spine of the ship's main hull and bearing down fast on the ship's command tower. The orc craft were ugly, threatening-looking things, garishly coloured and decorated with outlandish and primitive orc rune markings, bristling with combined fighter and bomber armaments, and powered by crude and outrageously large chemical reaction engines mounted on their wings and tail. One of them was clipped by a strafing line of las fire from a pursuing fury, and was instantly transformed into an exploding fireball. The other three opened up with their afterburners and threw off their pursuers, flying with almost suicidal recklessness amongst the thrusting peaks and spires of the ship's upper superstructure. Semper studied their progress with detached calm. Despite the fact that the command deck where he was now standing was almost certainly their intended target. Crude but no doubt all too effective bomb missiles hung beneath their wings, their warhead nose cones painted with savage and grinning orcoid faces. Anti-ordnance fire reached up from the defence turrets, studded along the Macarius's dorsal spine, but the angle of fire was poor, and the orc craft hugged the sheltering cover of the superstructure. They were in the last stages of their attack run now, forced to finally leave the cover of the hull and arc upwards towards the command tower. Their trajectory brought them within reach of the anti-ordnance defences mounted on the command tower and up into the arc of fire of the hull defences. They were suitably punished for their reckless final manoeuvre. Last cannon fire and exploding flechette missile detonations hammered into them from two different directions. The starboard side attacker blew apart, followed seconds later by his port side wingman. The centre fighter, one engine ablaze and one shredded wing, trailing fire, continued on towards its target. Semper stared down the attacker, locking eyes with the grinning, bestial image painted across the fighter's blunted nose, the face, no doubt, of some typically savage and unknowable orc war god. The orc fighter was 200 metres away. A second later, and it was 150 metres away. 
The time to lower the thickly armoured blast shields over the command deck's vulnerable viewing bay windows were minutes gone. The fighter opened fire, heavy cannon shells striking the reinforced glass steel of the window and forming cracks in it centimetres deep. Semper wondered why the pilot had not yet launched his primary missile armaments and could only guess that the damage his craft had sustained had somehow disabled his payload launch mechanisms. A suicide run, then, he thought. Wondering if a bomb-laden orc attack craft, crashing through the viewing bay and exploding into the interior of his command deck, would indeed be enough to cripple his entire ship. Less than a hundred metres now. Semper could see the pilot inside the cockpit. The atmosphere inside it was on fire. The orc pilot wreathed in flame. He was shouting, his tusk-filled mouth forming sounds which Semper could only guess at. Some bestial orc battle chant, or prayer words of dedication to yet another orc war god. The expression on his face matched the one of savage animal joy painted on the nose of his craft. Fifty metres, Semper resisted the urge to turn or look away. His grandfather may have survived to earn a peaceful and easy death on the family estates, but Semper's father and two of his uncles had all died in the Emperor's service on the command deck of an Imperial warship. Semper had always imagined that their fate would one day be his too, and he was determined to meet his fate with the same stoicism which they too had faced it. Thirty metres. A final, desperate burst of fire from one of the command tower's defence turrets blew away the tail of the fighter. The orc craft corkscrewed down out of sight, crashing seconds later several decks down into the armoured front of the tower. Semper felt the impact of the crash as a tremor through the deck beneath his feet. He turned, catching the look of mutual relief on the face of Alante, not realising until this moment that his second-in-command had been standing by him the entire time, facing the prospect of instant obliteration with the same stoic resoluteness. "'Make a note, Mr. Alante,' remarked Semper, with as much arch-reserve as he could still muster. Extra target drill needed for the defence turret gunnery crews. And find out who the crew were on that last burst of fire, and send them a case of the finest and strongest grog we have in the ship's stores, with the captain's compliments. Elsewhere, the battle continued to rage. The Drakenfell's lance batteries gored into the sides of another rock, blasting away or vaporising hundreds of tons of soft, porous rock. The asteroid material of the rock's body was streaked with deposits of glittering metallic ore substance. Whatever the substance was, it was apparently highly fissionable. It ignited instantly when the star-hot power of the lance beams touched it, setting off an instantaneous chain reaction through the interior of the rock. The entire rock disappeared in a nuclear flash, lighting up the void like a second short-lived miniature sun. The sudden and Massive energy burst overwhelmed the Drakenfell's shields and temporarily blinded its scanner systems. Amongst the surrounding rocks, the effects were much worse. One of them, the closest, was reduced to a burnt-out cinder by the flash, while two others were caught on the periphery of the blast and took varying degrees of damage. Two suffered more damage still, accidentally colliding into each other as their crews, panicked by the evidence of what they assumed to be some new and super-powerful human weapon, fired up crude and unpredictable emergency manoeuvring rockets. In his armoured strategium shell, deep within his ship, Erwin Ramus, 
captain of the Drakenfels and a Battlefleet Gothic legend in his own right, allowed a rasping chuckle to escape from his lipless mouth. Who else? He laughed to himself. But the Greenskins would build a fortress base upon an asteroid streaked through whose deposits of enriched plutonium. Ref Zane registered the nuclear detonation as a flash of buzzing interference cutting through the flow of information being fed into him through the mind-impulse link with his Fury's onboard systems. The servitor navigator, seated in the rear cockpit space behind him, emitted a brief question in the form of a transmitted query equation. Zane ignored the query and the events which had prompted it. Whatever that distant explosion had been, it had no bearing on his divine work. They were in amongst the cluster of rocks now, weaving in and out of the asteroids, a vast and chaotic dogfight melee, with Imperium Furies and Thunderbolts, and a bewildering array of Orc fighter bombers, finding and then losing each other amongst the deadly maze of drifting space debris. He was flying Lone Wolf, without any supporting wingman, without even a living human navigator, and that suited his purposes perfectly. Back aboard the ship, his fellow pilot shunned his company, and that suited his purposes too. He held no malice nor ill will towards them. They were, as far as he could tell, good and conscientious servants of the Emperor, but they did not understand his divine purpose. He was an avenging fury. He killed the Emperor's enemies, and he did so under the Emperor's direct guidance and protection. He had been busy with his divinely ordained business this day. Six more kills, six more enemies of the Emperor destroyed, six more blessings to be added to the holy shrine he maintained in his personal quarters. His comrades feared him, he knew, and mocked him. Zealot Zane, they used to call him behind his back. Machine Zane, they often called him now. More servitor than man, they whispered snidely amongst themselves. Zane forgave them. They did not understand the transformation which had happened to him in the events during the evacuation of Bellatis. He had faced and vanquished an enemy of the Emperor, a demon of the warp no less. Protected by the holy aura of the Golden Throne, he had survived the encounter, even if much of his body had been destroyed. The recovery had been long and painful. The mastering of a new body, which was more machine than flesh, even more so. But, throughout it all, Zane knew he would prevail. After all, the Emperor himself was with him. His comrades saw the injuries he had suffered as a disability, a source of pity and secret horror. To Zane, though, they were liberation. Only the flesh, the most superficial element of his humanity, had been burned away in the all-cleansing fire. The most important part... His emperor-given soul remained, and his new machine body freed him from the weaknesses of the flesh, allowing him to better carry out his holy work. He brought the nose of his fury up, sensing rather than seeing yet another new kill opportunity. Machine eyes allowed him to see and feel all his fighter craft saw. The distant shapes of two orc craft drifted into view. The orc fighters were difficult for his wing-mounted missile weaponry to lock onto, he knew. The orcs' primitive power systems and crude fossil fuel engines threw out unpredictable energy signals, confounding the Imperium's more sophisticated scanning devices. 
His machine-augmented brain judged the distance from him to the targets. Machine hands powered up his engine's thruster power, pushing him forward towards the targets at an accelerated speed, but which would not yet alarm the targets to his presence. Machine patience, freed from the emotions of flesh, calmly counted out the seconds until the moment of interception. A human soul, free and untainted, exulted in the expectation of the imminent deaths of the Emperor's enemies. The first target drifted into his cockpit screen's targeting display. Flesh was weak. Flesh would have fired already. Machine patience still held sway, counselling caution, knowing that the target lock-on was never certain in the first few crucial moments. Machine mind gave the command. Machine hands moved calmly across the firing controls. The quad cannons, mounted in his fury's nose, fired as one, spitting out a stream of laser energy. The brief storm of las bolts found and pursued its quarry. The target broke apart in a sudden, fiery burst. Machine mind calmly replayed the incident, satisfied at its choice of the correct course of action. Human soul offered up a silent prayer of rejoice. The last remaining target peeled away, hitting its afterburners and tracing a long burning arc across the starfield. Machine mind and machine hands matched the target's movements. Machine eyes kept the target fixed in sight, working with machine mind to calculate angles of fire and likely speeds and trajectories. The target looped around and reversed its course, coming straight at them. The servitor navigator clicked and whirred in faint alarm. Machine mind did not panic. Machine hands did not waver. Human mind recognised the signs of an experienced and skilled enemy pilot. Human soul thrilled at the prospect of the death of such an enemy. Human mind took over, doing what no mere machine could do, flying straight towards the oncoming target. Skillfully jinking the fighter craft through the hail of autocannon fire now filling the void around it. A stray shell careened off the hull, just in front of the cockpit. A stream of shells shredding part of the tail fin. Another stray blast blew away the cowling in his starboard engine. Warning runes flashed across instrumentation panels. Machine mind made urgent calculations and cancelled withdrawal. Machine hands longed to seize the control stick and steer them out of the path of imminent destruction. Human soul ignored them. Human soul and human mind bided their time. Human soul and mind had been here many times before in previous battles. The fury jinked aside at the last moment, unleashing two wing missiles at the target. The orc craft disappeared in an explosive rush. Zane's fury flew through the midst of the still-expanding debris cloud, pieces of wreckage smashing off its armoured hull adding to the chorus of warning runes going off within the cockpit. Zane ignored them all. Machine was strong and efficient, but human was always better. Human was that part of us which belonged to the Holy Emperor, and so was in itself partly divine. He brought the fighter up tight and fast, skimming low level across the rocky canyons and plains of a nearby rock, his eyes and the Fury's auger senses scanned the rock's surface, seeking suitable targets. Machine eyes saw the tell-tale heat trails from exhaust vents, hidden amongst a cluster of needle-like stalactite rock formations. An extremely tempting and vulnerable target for a bomber run, but not with any of the lesser ordnance his fighter was carrying. 
Light flashed out at him, from the rim of a crater, half a kilometre over. Zane directed his attention in that direction and saw a cavern mouth set into the wall of the crater, protected by at least two small defence turrets, turrets which were now firing at him. Without the lines of tracer fire coming from them, he might not have noticed the hidden crater at all. He gave praise to the Emperor for the stupidity and over-eagerness of some anonymous orc gunner as he hit his forward-breaking jets and guided the fighter down into the crater for a closer look at the potential target within it. Defence turret fire zigzagged past him, ploughing the surface of the crater and throwing up chunks of rocky debris. He saw light flooding out from the cave mouth, and within the light, the shapes of orc fighter bombers sitting there in the wide cavern beyond, squat orcoid figures in some form of crude, gas-belching armoured vacuum suits moved amongst them, and Zane saw fuel cables and power couplings snaking amongst the park craft, and stocks of munitions piled up nearby. No matter how disorganised and ramshackled the scene, Zane still recognised an attack craft launch deck when he saw one. One of the orcs saw him, and aggressively, if futilely, raised a handgun to fire several shots at his cruising fury. Zane hit the lift thrusters and pulled up, intending to turn round again and make a proper attack run on the launch bay cavern. A few missiles into the munition stacks and fuel dumps at the back of the cave would quickly wipe the place clean of all trace of green-skinned life. Tracer fire from the defence turrets chased after him. He easily outran it, arcing up out of the crater. The view through his cockpit window rolled and yawed. Cratered and pitted rock fell away, to be replaced by a glittering starfield. He pulled on the altitude controls, rolling the fighter over as he prepared to dive back down on the target. A shadow, huge and dark, fell over his fighter, blotting out the star field above. The servitor navigator gave an electronic squawk of alarm. Zane looked up, seeing the huge, gaping, brightly painted jaws of a giant creature looming above him in space. Metallic, jagged teeth gaped open, revealing a battery of rudimentary, ugly and deadly weapon barrels clustering within its mouth. A giant red eye, painted onto the side of a hull crudely patchworked together from great thick slabs of ill-matched metals, glared balefully down at him. The gargantuan or cruiser rumbled past overhead, hiding within the cluttered surveyor shadow of the surrounding asteroids. Another orc cruiser vessel, different in outline and configuration, but identical in the same deadly lumbering purpose, followed along behind it, accompanied by a school of smaller and eager-looking escort craft. Human mind and soul faltered, temporarily overwhelmed by the sheer savage scale and ferocity of the orc vessels. Machine mind took over. Machine hands opened a calm channel. Other than the whisper of prayer words to himself, it had been several days since Zane had spoken aloud, and the sound of his own voice, harsh and machine-formed, almost came as a shock to him. Stone, Thor, to Macarius, have sighted two orc cruiser vessels and escorts. They're powering up engines and heading towards you. Be warned, Macarius. The bait has definitely been taken, and the prey is coming out into the open. And there we have it. Thank you all for watching. Uh, it's about to kick off. 
It's about to kick off. I love this stuff. I love this naval combat. This is the stuff that really... This is the, these are the books that really coloured what naval combat in 40k would be. And so when I'm playing Battlefleet Gothic, these are the kind of things that I imagine, you know, when I read about spaceship combat. And I think these books definitely cemented a lot of the, the features of it we see in the current let's the current setting and the current lore. This was pre sort of everything really. It was very early on that this book was made compared to a lot of the stuff that came afterwards. So, you know, it's it's really like a yeah, it's a starter off point. You know, you got to remember, like, Battlefleet Gothic had just come out when this came out, or it had been out a year or so. The first one was, was out when Battlefleet Gothic, the game, was released. So all of this was kind of new. We all kind of had a vague idea. And there'd been some short stories covering different things and different bits of lore. But these books really cemented what the Imperial Navy is. But anyway, thank you all for watching. I'll be back again with more stuff soon. Please do give the video a like. And please, please, please do give me a comment. Uh, let me know what you think. That really helps everything with the uh, the YouTube video and the channel, everything. Likes, comments, it's all good. And I appreciate it massively for you taking the time to do that if you do. Subscribe if you're not subscribed. Share this to anyone you think might enjoy it. I really appreciate that. If you're listening to the podcast version, please give a favorite and all that. Whatever it is on the particular podcast platform that you use. I don't know. There's loads. I don't know. It's on everything. Thank you all again, though. I really appreciate it. Thank you to everybody supporting the channel. Your names are scrolling by here. Uh, you are a big help, and uh, I really can't thank you enough. I'll be back again with more stuff very, very soon. Uh, thank you all very much again, and um, yeah, I hope you're enjoying this. This is a, this is a great trip down memory lane to me, and um, I read this when I was a kid as well, so there's like things that you miss, you know? You're, just, you're reading it again as an adult, and you're like, oh, that's funny. That's cool. Anyway, I'll be back again soon. Bye-bye. Have a good one. Tara.